Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Tim Bale, who's Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sussex. Tim has published a major new assessment of the Conservative Party, from the fall of Thatcher to the ascent of Cameron. It's a terrifically enjoyable read for anyone who lived through the wilderness years of the Tories, full of anecdotes and colourful characters, but also never losing sight of the big questions. Why did the Tories come so grievously unstuck? And why, when their fortunes did change, did they achieve a turnaround so quickly? The book appears with impeccable timing as the general election looms on the horizon. But, I began by asking, how had Tim originally conceived the project? Well, I actually thought about writing the book before David Cameron came along. So the initial question I was interested in asking was, you know, what had gone so wrong for this party that historically was so successful? And I guess, you know, I had the feeling, and you don't have to be an expert to have that feeling, that eventually <laughs> something must happen um, to, to change things for them. So when Cameron came along, I realised that this wasn't simply going to be a story of a party that had got stuck, but it was going to allow me to ask a second question, which was, how is it that someone could come along and actually change things very quickly, um, which David Cameron's managed to do. You say in your acknowledgements that some of your friends are mystified by your love affair with the Tory party. <laughs> and while well, I imagine you might not describe it in exactly those terms, what was it that kind of drew you towards the Tory party as an interesting subject? Well, it's partly actually because it is relatively speaking, neglected by academics. I mean, historians are quite keen on the Conservative Party, but political scientists, and I call myself a political scientist, tend, uh, I guess, for the most part, to be more interested in the Labour Party. And that might reflect their own political predilections. It might just reflect a tradition uh, of writing about the left rather than the right. So in a way, what I was interested in doing was kind of redressing that balance. And also, I first trained as a historian, and I was very aware, as most people are, that the Conservative Party is probably the oldest and the most successful party in the world. And I did think there was a puzzle there. You know, why was it that this party got so badly stuck? Because normally, if you looked at it prior to, to 1997, it had always been able to, you know, you know pick itself up and, and dust itself off and start all over again very, very quickly. And... Is the Tory party a party like any other party when you get down to it, when you kind of analyse it, or is there something unique about it? I think it's a very good question, and that's partly why I decided to write the book as well, because one of the things I wanted to do was actually have a look at what comparative political science says about political parties and why they do and don't change, and actually see whether one could apply that to a political party like the Conservatives, most of the writing on which is very... I wouldn't say parochial, but at least very um, uh, British-centred. Um, it regards it as somehow sui generis, as somehow different from all other parties. And I actually don't take that point of view. I, I think we can apply some of the lessons we can learn from other parties to the Conservative Party. And there are a whole host of reasons why we might predict that a party would get stuck, and, and some of those apply to the Conservative Party. The story you tell is not simply one of a party which didn't seem to be able to learn from its mistakes for quite a lot of time, but didn't even seem able to identify them as mistakes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think one of the interesting things about politicians, one of the paradoxes in some ways of our perception of politicians is that we, very many of us say, you know, all these guys will do anything to get elected. Uh, but actually, these guys won't do anything to get elected. Uh, very many of them are quite ideological. They are quite partisan. And that means that actually they wear a kind of filter or a blinker, which means that they very often, as you say, don't even see that there's a, a, a problem. Or if they do see there's a problem, they deflect 
um, the nature of that problem. So that, for example, the Conservatives, I think, spent a long time thinking there's something wrong with the salesman rather than there's something wrong with the product. And that's not to say there wasn't anything wrong with the salesman, but I think if you focus all the time on, on the salesman rather than the product, that means that you're not going to make the changes you need to make to actually move on. And so the post-mortem that one might have expected to follow the 1997 landslide defeat was a very, very long time in coming, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you put your finger on it there. I don't think the post-mortem really took place in earnest, to be honest. Certainly at the upper reaches of the party, when you look at the elected politicians, until 2005 and after the 2005 election. So we're really talking about three elections and three very bad defeats before the party finally came round to actually seriously thinking about what had gone wrong. And I think there was a good deal perhaps of complacency in 1997. I think a lot of Conservatives believed that they'd won the ideological battle um, with the Labour Party uh, and somehow all they had to do was to sort of sit tight and wait for the, the Blair project to implode and they believed it would do, do so quite quickly. And then when it didn't, they were left you know, wondering, well, what was going on? And uh, it took them really until 2005 to realise that it was them rather than the electorate or rather than the Labour Party that was the problem. Mm. And the long shadow of Thatcherism is one which is cast over that entire decade following the defeat, isn't it? It's, it, it's, it seems to be an idée fixe that many in the party cannot really exercise. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, while I, I wouldn't necessarily go along with the view that, uh, you know, the party's problems were due to, you know, uh, its guilt about <laughs> committing some kind of matricide uh, when it, it dumped Margaret Thatcher. I do think a lot of people in the party were persuaded that she somehow had a kind of winning recipe and that they really, um, to get back on track, all they had to do was repeat that winning recipe. And that winning recipe was to do with us, you know, a touch of populism, a commitment to tax cuts, to, to shrinking the state, to privatisation, etc. In other words, they were they were looking um, to, to win their way back with a recipe that probably applied very well to the 1970s and 1980s, but didn't apply so well to, to the 1990s and the noughties. And I suppose that's one of the myths that kind of nourished the party in, in those bad years. And there were other myths, like the myth that Labour had simply stolen their clothes and it was it was simply a matter of pointing that out and, and, and reclaiming them. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. The Conservative Party, as I said earlier, tended to see that it had won this ideological battle and that actually blinded them to the fact probably that Labour... Um, wasn't quite the collapse to Thatcherism that, that some people were suggesting. And if you look at the Labour Party and Labour government policy rather than Labour government rhetoric, you could actually suggest that it's a pretty uh, standard social democratic uh, party. I mean, huge spending on education, huge spending on health, which doesn't indicate to me and shouldn't really have indicated the Conservative Party that somehow this represented you know, the victory of Conservatism long term uh, over Labour. Really what the Conservatives... Uh, uh, should have picked up was that what Blair and Brown actually at the time had, had managed to do was combine Labour's reputation for caring with the Conservatives' reputation, if you like, for competence and put those two things together and that was the electoral winning combination. It wasn't really a Thatcherism that was going to, to help them anymore. Let me ask you a counterfactual question. It, it was the case that Michael Portello came within a whisker of winning the leadership when Ian Duncan Smith actually got it. If he had, in fact, won, do you think the Tories would have pulled themselves together quicker or was the party simply not ready then for that kind of medicine? 
Well, I think you're right. I think the party wasn't ready for what Portillo was offering them. And there is some doubt as to whether Michael Portillo's position back in, in 2001 was exactly what it became um, later on. There would have been a risk as well electing Michael Portillo because I think it would have caused quite a lot of internal disunity. Um, certainly a lot of activists would have been very unhappy uh, about electing someone they didn't feel was really right for the um, Conservative Party, uh, particularly on uh, social issues. So I think the recipe that Michael Portillo had in 2001 and certainly by 2003 was probably the right one for the Conservative Party and actually you can see a lot of what David Cameron has done in, in Michael Portillo but it simply wasn't feasible for the party in, in 2001 to go with it and unfortunately perhaps it wasn't feasible for the party if it were associated with someone like Michael Portillo. If it had been associated at that stage with someone like David Cameron then perhaps actually they could have um, pulled something off but Michael Portillo posed particular problems, I think, for the Conservative Party. I mean, would it be going too far to say that the party was singularly unfortunate in the individuals who were available for many years to to bring about reform? Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, one of the problems, in, in a way, with being so badly beaten is, of course, it reduces a parliamentary party to a rump of people, which means actually you have very, very little choice, given that, you know, the person leading you has to be an MP, has to be an MP probably of a certain standing, has to be an MP who has a fairly safe seat, has to be an MP who doesn't have too many enemies, the number of people who actually fulfill those criteria is actually very small. And I guess one of the themes of the, the book is that high politics, if you like, is a very, very small world, which means that you don't really have uh, many options when it comes to, to um, picking your leader. And therefore, it's very, very easy, particularly if you rush into a leadership contest, to, to make a mistake. Mm. I mean, you say repeatedly in the book that you're looking at the interplay between institutions, ideas, interests and individuals. But it seemed to me that in individuals count for a very, very great deal in that equation. Yes, I mean, I, I think they do. I mean, I, I'm very interested, obviously, as a social scientist in the, in the institutional side and the organisational side of things. But I think particularly, I guess, with the Conservative Party, which is so leadership dominated, individuals are going to matter. I mean, this is a party whose activists, you know, while they may feel very strongly about certain subjects, don't actually have much um, say on, on the policy of the party and whose MPs and even whose shadow cabinet don't really have much control over the leader, to be honest. So uh, everything stands and falls, particularly for the Conservative Party anyway, on, on what the leader does or, or isn't able to do. Mm. Did the Nadia come under Ian Duncan Smith? Is that the moment when the party touched bottom and the only direction to go was up? <laughs> well, actually, a lot of my interviewees said uh, said that. Uh, in fact, one of them even suggested that Ian Duncan Smith had done the Conservative Party a favour by being such a <laughs> poor leader, just as Michael Foote had done the Labour Party a, a favour in 1983 in some ways. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think in 2003, there really wasn't, you know, nowhere else for the party to go but to elect someone who was at least seen as, as competent and as least seen as a, a serious politician but of course the irony in that um, and, and that decision to, to um, choose Michael Howard and um, to replace Ian Duncan Smith was that it put them right back ideologically into the Thatcherite box or the Thatcherite corner into which they would painted themselves already it gave them absolutely no chance of any kind of um, ideological moderation so while they had probably a competent leader he still wasn't the right leader. 
But it was nonetheless under Michael Howard that the Notting Hill set began to get its act together and become a, a force in the party. Yes, and actually I think Michael Howard is a rather fascinating politician. Here's someone whose convictions are certainly um, Thatcherite, for, for want of a better description, but who is, I think, a very intelligent and actually a rather more engaging person than many people give him credit for. And I think that actually allowed him to see that, although perhaps his own election campaign in 2005 wasn't going to be um, a kind of modernising campaign, that he would in the end have to promote people to come after him who would actually be able to change the party. And it was clearly Michael Howe's decision after the 2005 election not to resign immediately and to allow this kind of extended leadership contest to take place, which in effect produced the post-mortem that the party had never actually undertaken after 1997, which put the party back on the road to recovery. You mentioned, Tim, the, the fact that the Conservative Party pulled itself together is not surprising because mm. parties you know, eventually tend mm. to. But the interesting thing was the speed with which that was accomplished. What, what do you think the main factors were in it happening quickly when it did actually happen? I think the key to that is actually the, the nature of the Conservative Party itself and the institution of the Conservative Party. The fact that this is a very top-down party, which generally speaking, especially at the beginning of their reign, gives actually quite a lot of leeway to leaders. That means that if you pick the right person and that person has the right strategy, then you're going to be able to turn around that party fairly quickly. Now that's in marked contrast to a a more democratic, if you like, organisation like the Labour Party, where there is much more ability on the part of people who disagree with the leader to slow down uh, what he or she wants to do. So once the Conservative Party picked David Cameron, Once it became obvious that David Cameron's strategy was probably a a winning strategy, especially in the context of um, a Labour government which was beginning to tire of of, uh, Tony Blair and elected Gordon Brown, then the turnaround was going to happen quite quickly. 